Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. First, a big thanks to Victor Adair for sitting in for me last week. Lots of great interviews. I invite you to check them out at mikesmoneytalks.ca. But man, we've had some action this week. We've got both central banks in the U.S. and Canada weighing in. Neither raised their interest rates. Does that mean there's been a big change in the investment environment? Well, I'm going to ask Paul Beatty that. He's from BT Global, and he, I think, thinks this is an opportunity, especially in the yield play with some uh, amazing yields. And we were talking 6 and 7%, sometimes even higher. I'll get more on that with Paul. I'm also going to be talking about the carbon tax. Who isn't talking about the carbon tax? Chris Sims is going to be with me. She's the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Man, it's big news. We'll talk more about it. Plus, uh, Ozzy's got some stuff with us on real estate that you've got to be aware of. Victor Dare, the latest in the markets. Michael Levy on the slowing Canadian economy. So I ask you to stay with us. But first, I don't know about you, but the event starting on October 7th with the surprise attack and butchering of civilians by Hamas, and specifically For me, it was the reaction of so many Canadians, including on university campuses and downtown cores of our biggest urban centers. The tendency to rationalize it, excuse it, and most troubling for me was to celebrate it. It has me thinking that Canada will never be the same. Well, it certainly won't be for me. British historian Simon Sebag Montefiore reflects, I think, well, how I'm actually feeling when he says, the lack of decency and respect for human life is astonishing. Almost instantly after the Hamas attack, a legion of people emerged who downplayed the slaughter or denied actual atrocities that even happened, as if Hamas had just carried out a traditional military operation against soldiers. October 7th deniers, like Holocaust deniers, exist in an especially dark place. And there are many throughout our country, as I said, in university faculties, in classrooms, make that many recent arrivals to Canada. Because no mistake, we imported this hate, and we've let it fester. It's not that anti-Semitism is new in Canada, but celebrating a slaughter of innocent civilians, well, that takes it to another level. I'm wondering, do you think Canada's better off for this? Because I sure don't. If you had told me, even in September, that we would have thousands of people in Canada rationalizing, even celebrating the slaughter of children and seniors, the rape of women, I wouldn't have believed you maybe somewhere else in the world, but not here in Canada. Aren't we the polite Canadians who take pride in our role in peacekeeping missions? Not the ones clamoring in the streets for the blood of a specific ethnic group. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about the so-called Palestine problem, at least not today. And I do support the right to protest, and I support free speech, no matter how odious the opinions. What I'm talking about is targeting a specific group threatening people for the crime of being Jewish. I mean, the parallels to 1935 in Germany are unavoidable. I'm talking about actions that are clearly in contravention of the criminal code under Section 319. Hate speech is defined in quotes as everyone who, by communicating statements in a public place, incites hatred against an identifiable group where such incitement is likely to lead to a breach of the peace is guilty of an indictable offense. Well, come on, we got thousands of people clearly targeting an identifiable group. Well, every pro-Hamas Palestinian protester is pushing some level to breach the peace. Those chanting and waving signs that say, from the river to the sea, well, they're calling for the end of Israel. While others calling for the boycott of Jewish businesses or stars of David are painted on the doors of Jewish homes and businesses. 
I mean, students on campuses like York University, Toronto Metropolitan University, that's formerly Ryerson, make the absurd claim that Israel is committing genocide uh, in Gaza while stating that Israel is not a country. We have people tearing down posters of some of the kidnapped victims. What's noteworthy is that no one has been charged with a hate crime. No consequences whatsoever for spreading hate aimed at a specific group. You know, leaders of Hamas have been unequivocal in stating their goals. Just two weeks ago on LBC TV in Lebanon, Ghazi Hamad from the Hamas Political Bureau stated in quotes, we will repeat the October 7th massacre time and again, one million times if we need to, until we end the occupation. Well, the TV journalist asked, occupation of Gaza? No, he replied, no, all of Israel. He went on to say in quotes, everything we do is justified. The slaughter of women, children, and the elderly, elderly justified. The Al-Qasa flood is just the first time. There will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. Come on, where is the possibility for compromise with that? Hamas military leader Mohammed Deif instructed the Hamas fighters, in quotes, kill them wherever you find them. Remove this filth from your land and your sacred places. Come on, where do you think the compromise is going to be with that? Yet thousands of Canadians, including an organized later, act, academics, uh, government-supported organizations, openly support that. My question is, what happens now? Do we finally pay attention to what's being taught in some classrooms and on some university campuses? Do we continue to ignore the fact that for years, Jewish people have topped the list of groups targeted for hate crimes? Uh, for me, it's only the most naive think that this is where it ends, because I think that violence begets violence. There's so many aspects I know to this situation, way more than we have time to discuss now. But I thought I'd finish with a little ray of hope. I hope that Konstantin Kissin is correct when he says, in quotes, many people woke up on October 7th sympathetic to parts of the woke ideology and went to bed that evening questioning how they had signed on to a worldview that had nothing to say about the mass rape and murder of innocent people by terrorists. As I said, amen, and I hope it's right. It's time for honest, thorough discussions. We'll see if we're up to it. Hey, by the way, this is the first weekend, an important sort of note for us, is that you can get tickets for the World Outlook Conference, February 2nd and 3rd. Yeah, we've launched it. We're ready to go. And I'm really excited about the lineup. But I'm always excited. I'm excited for another reason. We have quality analysts coming. The track record's been exceptional. But the time we're doing it in, this time, not just talking about the geopolitical issues that we're dealing with today, I think they're reflective of a time of historic change. And I know I've been saying that for years, and I think it's been proven validated. We are in a monetary crisis. We're on the stage of a sovereign debt crisis. I can throw figure after figure at you that validates those observations. And as I've said, I think for a number of years, if you're not aware of what's happening, you're opening up the possibility to be roadkill if you don't prepare for it. And I think that's what happens, and I'm very worried about it, for many people when they watch the mortgage rates jump up aggressively, and now they're faced with serious questions about, do they have to move? Do they have to sell their home? Uh, what, what does it mean for other aspects of their lifestyle? All of that stuff. That's just one small example, and there's so much more to discuss, and that's exactly what we'll be doing at the World Outlook Conference with a huge roster of fantastic analysts, all chosen because they've got great track records. So I want to invite you to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and time for the early bird ticket. Sign up now. Hope to see you there. 
Well, I'm not so sure it's not the biggest story of the week because it impacts the economy, impacts politics. But I got to tell you this. I'm sitting down you know, earlier in the week and this headline comes across my, my uh, computer and it goes, the uh, federal government's going to cancel the carbon tax for three years in Atlantic Canada on heating oil. And I, I can't even say my WT something moment because I, I was just, are you kidding me? And my first thought was, oh, that's right. They got 24 seats there. So they're more, they're concerned more about that than they are climate change. But something that uh, Chris Sims has been on, the Alberta director of the taxpayers Feder- taxpayer.com, Canadian Taxpayer Federation. And I encourage you to go to taxpayer.com. Chris, what was your first reaction when you saw that? Uh Well, it was joy (laughs) because we finally see a crack in the dam. Uh, As as your listeners know, the Taxpayers Federation has been fighting against the carbon tax and pointing out that this is completely unaffordable for normal people and that it's totally unfair to punish people for the sin of heating their home in Canada. We've been fighting on that now for years. And to have Trudeau blink, he's finally blinked on this. And he has had to admit that, oh, this is punishing people for staying warm and people can't afford it. Politically speaking, he's really stepped in it here. His leg is in a bear trap. We've got premiers all calling for him to give everybody the equal amount of relief on their home heating. Uh, I don't know how he gets out of this. Well, uh, your point's also very well taken in terms of, wait, we were told this was to fight climate change. So when you take it off, what are you doing there? Uh, We were told that uh, the carbon tax will put more money in our pockets. So are you actually taking money out of the people's pockets, and especially in Eastern or Atlantic Canada? You know, I mean, just on every step. And we had Minister Guibault, well, I think it was literally three days before saying, we're mm-hmm. not going to do any of that. We're not going to have any breakouts. You can't have any breakout. And literally, like whatever it was, 48, 72 hours later, you're breaking it out. So there's just so many fronts on that basis. Yeah, to see the science quickly pivot and become political science is fascinating (laughs) here mike and you nailed it because he's got so many seats there and now a little bit of background i've got you know a wing of my family from atlantic canada from nova scotia so i've seen how your furnace oil tank is is filled up now out west here I'm old enough to remember when a lot of people used to heat with oil, but then they had the big push in the late 80s, early 90s to switch to the clean burning blue flame. So most of us are on natural gas now for our furnaces. So to see Trudeau actually buckle to his Atlantic caucus within the Liberal Party now is fascinating. And I'll tell you why it's happening now. Two things. One, as of July 1st, folks in Atlantic Canada suddenly started paying the federal carbon tax. A lot of people don't know this, but up until July 1st, they had a special deal where they didn't pay it. All of a sudden, boom, their gasoline goes up by about 14 or 16 cents a liter. Their diesel leaps up by 17 or 19 cents a liter overnight. So that got people really rattled, Mike. And now, you know, it was October, November, people are getting the trucks to back up into their backyards to fill those tanks and they're looking at those bills. Yeah, I, 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 I'm really glad you've made that point because, uh, you know, depending where you are, that's where you're focusing on, on whatever impact of any tax. So in British Columbia, you know, I mean, we don't even get a rebate out here. That's still one of the things I wish people would understand. Originally, the carbon tax, and I always say I'm tired of explaining this. 2008, the carbon tax by legislation was revenue neutral. So anything they collected, they had to compensate with tax reductions. 
uh, the next liberal government came in, they partially reduced that. They talked about tax breaks that they already were giving, like film tax credits were included in that calculation. So they started the ball rolling, and then the NDP comes in and just says, no, nah, we're not doing any of that. And it's, it's billions of dollars we're talking here. But oh, yeah. as you say, then cross over to Atlantic Canada, and they weren't paying anything. And all of a sudden, here we go, and that's just this year. I mean, the carbon tax, what is it? In two, two years, is going to be $115 or something? Like the, yes. the, the next rise it raises are coming right now. And yeah. uh, so that, that certainly had an impact. The, the change was not incremental for them. It was a shock. Yeah. I anecdotally, and this is, <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, I have a family member out there who's in Nova Scotia. You know, one of those funny things with family where they don't know what you do. Like, yes. <laughs> she texts me Mike in July saying, have you heard about this carbon tax thing? <laughs> this is really expensive. Why are they charging me this? Yeah. And this was just on filling up her vehicle. Yeah. This wasn't even touching home heating. And so then this is where we get into the really serious brass tax. So Trudeau blinks, realizes that he's going down by the nose, okay, in Atlantic Canada. Now the rest of us, most of us use natural gas. All across the West, most of us use natural gas. Folks in British Columbia, even the majority there, use natural gas, especially if you're up north. What's key here, and I find fascinating, Mike, is that last I checked, there's an awful lot of liberal seats in Ontario, and they use natural gas too. And so what Trudeau has said is this tiny sprinkling, 3% of Canadians, yes, 3% in Atlantic Canada, they get to save $300 this year on home heating. The rest of us, no soup for you. Yeah, and of course, that again challenges their claim for a number of years that it actually puts more money in your pocket. Well, clearly mm -hmm. it doesn't. Uh, the other thing, I, sorry, I'm just going to digress for one sec. Different. I hear yeah. a lot of people saying, oh, uh, it have, it's not having a big inflationary effect. And I say, first of all, you've got to understand, people care what they pay. They don't care the comparison, you know, from two years ago, you know. So that's what inflation measures. It's the rate of growth of price increases. No, this is just I went and I filled up my tank and I'm paying a lot more or I'm doing this and I'm paying more. So uh, it's sort of a red herring when they start talking regarding inflation, because if they do the big rise and let's say they let it, they didn't rise for the next year. Well, it would be zero rate of increase. Right. And I'm still paying more than I can afford. So Correct. I mean, the point is, is. I'm just fascinated because I say this has uh, business implications, obviously personal financial implications, and I think it's going to be political implications because, as you said, uh, who was it? It was Goody. Uh, remind me of the woman who uh, the uh, it's a Goody Hutchings, I think, yes. made the pronouncement earlier this week. An MP, I'm sure she's a fine one, but uh, saying. Hey, if you want these kind of breaks, you better vote liberal. Well, okay, that's outrageous. I, I felt she just didn't know what she was saying. But how about this? There's lots of liberals elected throughout the country that aren't going to get a break. So why aren't they fighting for us? I think that's going to be uncomfortable. The liberal gets up at a, a campaign meeting or, you know, that kind of thing. And you go, well, why didn't you? You know, you're supposed yeah. to represent us, not your party. You're supposed to represent us. And, of course, they won't be doing that. So I think that's another sort of uh, beachhead that they're going to have trouble dealing with. Yeah, for sure. And even taking it to the macro level, if you take a look at, you know, any political party leader or a prime minister, when they get elected, one of the first things out of their mouths after they thank their opponent is, even if you didn't vote for me, yeah. I will govern on behalf of all of you because that is how our Westminster system of governance yeah. works. 
Okay, you cannot just say, oh, well, maybe you should have more liberal MPs and then you'll be able to get a break on your home heating, which is exactly what the Minister of Rural Development said with her mouth out loud. So that was just a train wreck. But it's interesting because it's shown exactly what they're thinking and what they're saying. What we found interesting, or well, many things interesting. One of them, though, is that the environment minister, Stephen Guibault, the one who said no carve outs for anyone, we yeah. can't break yeah. the shield wall, has been nowhere to be found on this. From what I could see, he was not at that announcement when Trudeau made the announcement about the break on home heating. The only people that were there were the, those longtime members of parliament, most of them from the Atlantic Liberal yeah. Caucus, all grinning because they got a big win and they only started fighting on it in August after the carbon tax kicked in in their regions. Yeah, as I say, it's it's absolutely going to be fascinating. Uh, most analysts I'm reading or virtually every analyst to think this was a real political mistake. Uh, but again, it contradicts so much of what we've been told. And that's a hot issue because uh, the conservatives have made this an issue. So it already was supercharged politically. I just don't know where they run with the take questions. Where do, you, where do you go with, I thought you were committed to climate. Where do you go with, I thought it was putting more money in our pockets. You know, and obviously, as you say, it's a direct impact to individuals' uh, cost of living at a time mm-hmm. when we know from the polls that 50 to 60% of Canadians are having a really tough time. And that's before about another half of the mortgages have to get renewed, you know, at much higher rates. So this is a tough one. Exactly. Uh, I think just politically speaking, taking off my CTF hat a little bit here, um, politically speaking, I think he's really painted himself into a corner here. And I think that's why he wasn't at question period on Wednesday. So for the longest time, uh, the Liberal government were trying to fashion Wednesdays after the way it is over in the UK, where the prime minister's always there. And it's basically a leader's round between the opposition leader and the prime minister for the entire hour of question period. That was supposed to be on Wednesdays because that's when most people are there. They're not traveling back to their ridings. And that's after their Wednesday caucus meeting. Well, they had their Wednesday caucus meeting, which means each party gets together, closed door, phones down and talks or yells, but he didn't show up to QP. So there's a lot going on in Ottawa, and I think there's blood in the water on this issue. And now you're starting to see some older party stalwarts writing op-eds saying things like, you know what, time for some serious reflection here. But when it comes to the taxes and the Taxpayers Federation, we think it's really important to drive home how much this is costing people. And to have the Prime Minister admit out loud that this is unaffordable for people to be paying the carbon tax on home heating that's a huge win because he blinked. And now if fair is fair, if he really wants to govern on behalf of all Canadians, he's got premiers of provinces and in some cases, even their NDP opposition parties all singing from the same hymn book here saying, whoa, scrap the tax on all home heating. So furnace oil, natural gas and propane. Yeah. And as I say, there's no rationale why that's not happening. Chris, I know you're going to have a busy time with this at the taxpayer.com, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, And again, I love the work you guys do. I was thinking about this the other day. Seriously, that uh, people should look at the page, donate to the page, because you need advocates. And there's only about three sources I can think of for that, you know, with the taxpayers being in this fight about our cost of living. That's really what it's about. uh, and it's tough, as I say, I'm always frustrated when we don't appreciate there's people living at different income levels. And that problematic part has continued to grow to about 60% of Canadians are struggling right now. That worries me. Mike, it means a lot to us. Um, very quickly, folks, if you want to get in on this, 
Politicians don't act unless they're pushed. Email your MP now. Like now they're super sensitive about this topic. Tell them, scrap it for everybody's home heating. Because over the next three years, this is going to cost you around $1,100 extra just in the carbon tax on home heating. Yeah, Thanks, uh, that's a great point. Chris Hibbs, director of the Alberta Canadian Taxpayer Federation. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mike. I always look forward to getting a chance to talk with the founder of BT Global. Uh, Paul Beatty is with me. Paul, I, I, you know, when I've been hearing all the environment we're in, I mean, the interest rates, the recession, that kind of talk, I want to start just very quickly what your take is about the interest rate. You know, we've had a couple of announcements the last week or so, and our Canadian economy, I guess the U.S. economy too. Yeah. Well, good to be back, uh, Michael. Good to see you. Um, our take, what do we know for sure? We are convinced we're going into a consumer-led recession in Canada, completely convinced. And it 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 it, it could be a uh, could be a tough one. Um, we suspect we're going to have a, a, a consumer-led recession in the U.S. Uh, sometime next year, but it's going to be somewhat mild. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I um, and we we're also convinced that we cannot that the government cannot raise rates anymore in Canada. They haven't raised in a while. We don't think they're going to raise again. And I think what, what we heard yesterday. Uh, is it looks like the U.S. is is uh, is approaching you know peak rates, and so uh, it's been very tough you know on the, on the investment side for the last uh, 18 months, uh, very very tough uh, we found anyway, and uh, you know to make money and, and, and rates going up have, have collapsed all sorts of values, but um, you know it's 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 changing for the other direction, and uh, and so lots of opportunities. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. The opportunity side. Uh, I mean, we look at all the reports from the major banking uh, research firms all saying slowing a Canadian economy, but, but some are worse. Like Desjardins says, if you adjust for inflation, we're you know going to get 0.1% growth next year. Bank of Canada isn't far off in the negative side, although they keep missing every target they possibly could. I mean, look at those third, <laughs> those third quarter numbers, you know, that now we know are flat or maybe slightly worse. And gosh, it was July. And the Bank of Canada said we're going to grow 1.8%. So that's a pretty big miss, you know. But the point you're making is, hey, this is this is to be paid attention to. This is a slowing Canadian economy. And that's still without, the, you know, one of the things I'm always harping on is we still haven't, uh, you know, uh, remortgaged about 60% of what's out there. You know, so 60% of the mortgages over the next couple of years, people are going to be spending significantly more well, that doesn't get spent elsewhere. So I, I think that continues to fuel yeah, I, the I, sort of slowdown you're talking about. Right. And as as you pointed out on the show, you know, it's, it, this is predictable because as a Canadian consumer, you just you couldn't dodge this bullet, yeah. right? That, that, that you, you couldn't get a 30-year mortgage. Um, and so, you, you know, you're in for five years. And, and most people didn't. Most people, you know, were would, would finance, you know, two years and, it was so good for so long with low rates. And so there's no way to avoid this problem. And, and now it's coming at us. And, uh, and, and again, does that create, because obviously uh, there's two, two sort of statements. One, the, the end of the price hikes have, are here, the interest rate hikes. But that doesn't mean interest rates are going down yet. But uh, do you, does that sort of ring a bell about getting serious about finding positions in the market now? Yeah. For, as, <clears throat> from an investment point of view, it, it provides opportunity because uh, at least rates won't continue to go up. Well, okay, so now we can, uh, we can, uh, we can seize uh, 
um, some value, you know, very good value and, and, and not get hurt like we have been getting in the last, uh, I'd say, you know, a couple of years. Well, I, again, one of the messages that I hope people have gotten is that, you know, they talk about, you know, whoever's doing the marketing for the Magnificent Seven, you know, they got somebody at the stock exchange going to nickname the latest move. But, you know, the seven big stocks, if you didn't have those, every every piece of research tells you, you are lucky to be flat, lucky to be flat, with most being down. I mean, that's how dominant they were. I mean, with price earnings ratios that were through the moon, you know. How can you, uh, how can you not be down in Canada when... Uh... Yeah. Look, uh, the bank stocks have not performed well. The, uh, the the phone companies have not done well. The utilities have not done well. The REITs have not done well. I mean, <laughs> energy's been okay. Well, energy's been been good, but I mean, that's what other sectors. I mean, everything's been going down. And 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 frankly, we're convinced uh, uh, that just huge amounts of investment capital are are constantly being sucked out of our out of our economy. And, you know, basically going to the U.S. You know, if you look at the big pension funds, you look at the big uh, the big banks, the big managers of money. They'll take your investment dollar. You give uh, you give your your you know million dollars to uh, to RBC to, to to manage. What happens to that money? You know, eighty percent of it leaves the country within uh, within twenty minutes, right? Yeah. And um, uh, pension funds are doing the same thing. And a completely underreported story is what you're alluding to there. I mean, we have we're just starting, I think, to see the stats around that. You know, people say like the OECD says, oh, guess what? You're going to have the worst performing economy for 10 years. Oh, let me add another 20 after that. Well, it's because we don't have capital investment. We don't talk about productivity gains. We fall behind with Europe and the U.S. I mean, the list is a long one. And, and what you're alluding to, I think, is a major story that most people aren't aware of. You know, right. someone drops a million million bucks, 800,000 leaves the country quickly. Right away. And uh, yeah. so, frankly, if you take the, the largest financial institutions in this country are all doing the same thing. Yeah. We're, we're huge exporters of investment capital. And so, uh, anyway, it, it leads to a, a, a weaker Canadian uh, financial landscape. And uh, and certainly, you know, we, we have like, you know, I think it's like 10,000 public companies in Canada. How are these guys all doing? Most of them, of course, are small and, yeah. and mid-cap. And uh, yeah, it's been very tough. And uh, I don't know what we should do. Uh, break up the pension funds, you know, split them all into the 10 smaller funds uh, and then put in the rule that you have to invest, I don't know, 30% in Canada. You'd see the Canadian stock market go on a tear like uh, historical, you know. But I'd love to see us at least prioritize on the political level. We have not prioritized economic growth in any way, attracting capital. Like no one can make that case. And I'm not arguing that you can have whatever priorities you want, but let's recognize what priorities aren't there and they have implications. You know, that every policy decision has an implication and we ignore implications on a regular basis. And of course, what a surprise Mike Campbell thinks the economy is important. He thinks it's important to support charities. You know, uh, Paul, I've asked this for years uh, to people who don't, th who let's say are fond of measures that would reduce economic growth. I say, tell me who benefits from a lack of economic growth. I don't care if you're on the left, right, center of the political spectrum. Who benefits? Well, we're going to find out no one does. Who benefits from a weak uh, capital markets? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it's a big part of, uh, of our economy, right? The financial sector. And I don't know. I. Uh, Anyway, it's, well, it's, it's, it's been let tough. me ask you, as for you guys, so one of the distinguishing characteristics of BT Global is you also play the market short. I mean, you announce it, you go, we short stocks. And I remember one that you and I had some fun with because I thought Peloton was so overvalued 
like ridiculous. My joke was, if, if this is a fair value, if everyone puts one in their bathroom, their bedroom, their living room, and out in the garage. And I look there, and there's you guys at BT Global shorting that stock. And that's what I mean. It's, it's part of your position, long short. And you made a fortune shorting it. So let me also ask about the short side. I mean, I suspect, I agree, it's been a very difficult side on the long side, you know, to buy stocks and hold. It's been a difficult period with rising interest rates so dramatically. But, you know, I, I'm just wondering, your short side must have been doing some good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, overall, the, our fund has had very tough two years. Um, uh, and we're, we're not pleased with the results at all. But it, it's, it's not the fault of the short side. I can tell you we're our, our short book now in the last 18 months is up over 100 percent. Wow. Uh, so it worked. I mean, uh, we just didn't have enough. You know, we were, yeah. we were 20 to 25 percent short. And frankly, we should have been 40 to 50. Uh, uh, I feel the same way, by the way, when I see a stock and I buy a put. And the and the adjective ah put you know when I could when I should be taking two hundred puts out there no when I look and I yeah I made money about eight dollars actually uh, on that one because I only own three. Well, you, but, uh, you you can't you know you can't make money shorting stocks as an individual for sure right you need uh, you need yeah. a balanced portfolio and, uh, and it's it's very difficult to do you need to get the timing right and uh, and whatnot but. But, uh, you know, these consumer, we're talking about the, you know, the tapped out consumer. Well, um, there were huge opportunities um, to, to play uh, consumer uh, stocks to the downside. And uh, frankly, they all went down. Right. So that was, yeah. that was the sector. Um, let, let me ask you about the banks. You alluded to that. And a lot of people who uh, necessarily don't watch them all the time appreciate how dominant they are in our market. But they've all had a pretty good haircut here. Does that make you think maybe they're interesting at this point or there's a trigger if someone doesn't have exposure to that sector? Yeah. I mean, uh, there's no doubt at, at this, uh, at these yields, the, yes. the, the yield alone is, uh, is, is makes them uh, quite attractive. Right. And so they're not going to zero, right. They, uh, yeah. they can only, they can only uh, go down so far. They've had a, very nice uh, haircut and uh, you know bank of nova scotia now is yielding over seven and a half percent yeah you know they just they just cut i think they announced they cut like something like three thousand employees yes three thousand know, yeah yeah the banks the banks got the benefit you know shareholders have the benefit of of uh, them being able to cut costs and uh, yeah. and increase their profits i think this this whole uh, ai is going to help the banks right that uh, just the consumer interface and whatnot is going to going to help i think they're going to continue to shrink their branch uh, uh their expensive branches yep. probably and more online stuff and so in the in the end they can adapt and so so you know bank of nova scotia two years from now stock uh, i i could virtually guarantee is going to be higher <laughs> so well and you look at that seven and a half percent yield and i you know i've spent a lot of years and years on that kind of stuff but they've never cut a dividend None of those big, big five, you know, there's more than big five now, but of course, but looking back real historic, like going back as far as you could get a record, they've never cut the dividend. They didn't cut in 2008, you know, when the world was coming to an end. They didn't cut with COVID. In fact, we got some raises, you know, so I'm just saying that. Uh, I think the, the, the reason we don't, we don't play uh, the banks is basically because, well, first of all, every Canadian probably already owns some banks. Yes, right. right? So, so why pay us to... To get them more, but but the other thing is, they're probably not growth vehicles, yeah, any longer, right? I mean, you know, the government keeps allowing them into new businesses, and of course, they've been able to grow. Money management's now, um, I think, by far their biggest 
money producer, right? So if they didn't get into money management 15 years ago, they wouldn't have been growth opportunities back then. So the question you have to ask yourself is, is what is the growth opportunity for the for these organizations? And that uh, I'm not so clear on. So the yields the yields significant. Yeah. They, uh, they're not going to get cut. Uh, they're probably safe investments, but um, but you, I think you should. But your point, your point, Paul. Excuse me. Your point though about I, I don't need to pay you to tell me seven and a half percent yields pretty darn good, you know. And of course, as you say, but we all own those banks through our Canada pension plan at the very least. Or if you're lucky to be part of any pension plan, there's not a pension plan in the country that doesn't own the banks. So you pay experts like you and your your team and your staff. Uh, you know, to suss out other opportunities that we may not be aware of. And that and that's why, I mean, you know, you've been kind enough to come out to the World Outlook Conference, you know, several times and the audience has loved it because you're telling them stories or giving them ideas that they haven't heard elsewhere. And of course, you've done a myriad of uh, research on them. So you great explanations of that. So uh, I'm just saying, that's why I'm looking forward to hearing you again this year. But in saying that, I can't let you off the hook and not give me one or two things you're looking at these days. Well, I a little, think you, a little appetizer. And we'll, we're going to have some ideas for you uh, uh, in February for sure. But um, but right now, just uh, just this concept, if you believe rates have, have, have peaked, then, then there's there's several stocks uh, here in Canada that uh, that have fallen quite substantially and are yield plays. Yeah. But they also have the benefit that the, their growth plays. And uh, uh, this Brookfield uh, Infrastructure Partners, yeah. BIP, uh, we, the fund just uh, just bought in literally this week. Um, the stock's doing very well uh, in the last couple of days, you know, up 7% yesterday, 7% again today. Wow. It's got a big yield on it. And uh, and we think it's trading below its NAV, which is uh, uh, so. And it's a growing company and it's extremely well run. So there's a yield play for you. This Northland Power, uh, we've been following it for years. This stock has fallen from uh, $40 to $20 in the last 18 months. The stock's in half. It's got a 6% yield. I uh, I, I think you, you can't ignore uh, these opportunities. So yeah. We're getting into that. So well, that's an interesting example. Uh, first of all, when you see that kind of thing, but it's go it's aligned with the broad market, so it's just sort of going out with the tide. But there's nothing else fundamental going on there that would justify. I mean, because a lot of times, aren't we looking for the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater? You know, and opportunities where people had other reasons they sold, they got panicky, they got whatever. But that creates tons of value in the end. I mean, things overshoot to the downside, and yeah. so it's the the trend started 18 months ago, and it's been vicious really uh, for these companies. But but. You know, at one point uh, they stop going down and they, and they turn. And uh, I think I think we're really we're there on uh, yeah. these names. And you can find lots of others, uh, uh, perhaps. But uh, it's an interesting place. This is not where we focus. We you know we're not big yield players, but uh, but the yields out there. I think that's yeah. The, you know, the Canada is now the highest yielding stock market in the world. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can as soon as you say it, I can certainly believe it because I can't recall seeing such consistent yields you know, being so attractive at these guys, as you said, you know, we can find a 7% yield. I was looking at Algonquin power the other day and other people obviously were at eight and a half percent yield, you know, and I couldn't find anything materially wrong with the company. They're going to, you know, so I'm just saying another yield story. That's all I'm putting out there. There you go. AGF, a company in our, uh, in in our industry, the money management business, uh, a broker called me yesterday and said, you should take a look at AGF. And, and by the way, on top of everything, it's good value. To, but they'll pay you six and a half percent to own the stock. 
I'm like, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, uh, but I wanted to, I want to talk to you about, uh, un, you know, unintended consequences. Yeah, uh, please. Our glorious government uh, 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 came up with a genius idea that they have to do something for, uh, for the lower middle class and the uh, people that need to borrow money that the banks won't touch. So do you know that they, they came up with a rule maximizing the amount of interest companies can charge uh, Canadians, right? So they, you know, good intention, right? So they, they, they capped it at 35% interest, okay? But what have they actually done? They've created another duopoly in this country. And Lord knows we have lots of oligopolies, a couple yeah. of duopolies. Well, in, so, so all, the, all the consumers that, that the banks won't finance, what do they do? So if you don't own real estate, the banks don't want to lend you money, basically. Yeah. And so, so what do you do? Well, you end up going to that company, Go Easy. Uh, and there's a, another group uh, called Fairstone. Uh, and these guys have size, you know, multi-billion dollar books. They're not huge companies, but I think, they're, you know, three to five billion dollars, the two of them have. And they lend money to people that the banks don't touch. And they charge uh, not 15%, not, not 5%, not 15 but more like 35 Wow. Um, uh, but what's happened is all their competition uh, is now suffering because they used to charge much higher rates even, right, when you add in the fees and whatnot. And so so business is booming for these guys. And the stock, meanwhile, uh, GoEasy stock's gone from $220 to 110 And wow. business has never been better. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, we think the stock's trading around six times earnings and, um, and business is growing at, you know, 20% rates. And uh, we think we think uh, we think they're, they're coming up with their earnings next week. We think they're going to be good. We think the stock market's got it all wrong. Business has never been better. You think the banks are going to go into this space? No, they haven't for the last ten years. They're not going to go in now. And so, um, so and, and the actual business is even better than ever because now they're getting secured financing. They're using uh, you know let's say the car business. They're moving into the car business, car financing. So they yep. take the car security and. Uh, and whatnot. So the, the the risk on the loans is going down. The quality of the uh, of the collateral is going up. And and our government said, okay, you can only charge thirty five percent. Well, guess what? That's what they're going to charge. And and believe me, they make lots of money at thirty five percent. Yeah. And as you say, eliminating competition along the way. So that, so they've reduced consumer choice in that. But that, I was just thinking as you were saying that it's a great example of what I was saying earlier. We don't need you to find the banks. We know where they are. You know, but we need you to find companies like that. And the reasons you presented a lot of Canadian, most Canadians, virtually all of them won't understand that change and the implications of that change for their business. Well, and frankly, it came as a bit of a, uh, you know, uh, news to us. I mean, we, we spoke to management uh, just last week and they're like, business has never been better. Like, yeah. like this is it, anyway, it's. It, it's it's helped us out without without the intention of helping us. The government's actually helped us tremendously. And so uh, anyway, good for them. Lucky for hey, them. Yes. I can't I can't let you go without asking you about uranium because you were one of the the ports in the storm, as you know, on Money Talks. That's been a big rec long term recommendation for us. Pa being patient, the nuclear industry, I believe, was going to have a renaissance. It has. We started pumping that at the World Outlook Conference in 220, but went aggressively in 221 about it. And I know you guys have been, you know, very closely following it. Uh, you know, I just want your expertise on that right now. What, what do you think the state of the uranium market is? And gosh, well, there's, there's, how, there's, can you play it outside of Cameco and Sprott? <laughs> you know, I know this is the this is the problem. How do you play it? Uh, but your your speaker has been absolutely right. Uh, uranium is a very interesting uh, uh, place to be. 
um, it's only getting better, right? I, what I found out today was announced today that China is now buying half, 50% of the production out of Kazakhstan, right? Wow. Uh, so they, they used to supply the world. Now there's, it looks like they're supplying China themselves. And then we've got uh, problems in Niger, right? Um, yep. in, uh, which is the source of, uh, of France's uh, uh, uranium and, and, and Europe. And so, you know, there are problems uh, around the world. There, of course, the war in the Ukraine, what, uh, where are we going to get our uranium from? And how are we going to get a shirt supply? And frankly, how much inventory is there? Do we, you know, shouldn't you have, you know, yeah. months of stockpiled in, uh, of something as essential as this? And it's a growth industry, right? So what, what we like about it is uranium's at, you know, $75 now, up from 60. Well, what if it was at 100? Would anything change? I think with, I think I think no one single buyer would even notice, right? These utilities will pay any price for for the essential materials. So, you know, if, if it goes to one hundred and fifty dollars, I don't I don't think the industry changes one iota, right? So, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I said if it did, there's still as much buying. Uh, so that's kind of a unique thing, right? So, um, but how are we going to play it? And 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 I, I think the price is just going to continue to to rise. How do you play it? Uh, we've studied this, you know, we studied 18 years ago when we launched the fund, we owned a bunch of uranium stocks and here we are 18 years later, yep. we're still struggling to figure out how to play the space. And we've come to the conclusion that chemicals is a great way to play it. Uh, maybe next gen, or maybe just buy uranium itself with that sprout. Uh, it's a good idea. There's also the idea that you just go buy the, uh, uh, the ETF, the URA yep. in the U S which basically has it all covered. It's 25% of its chemical, 10% of its uranium uh, itself, and then they've got everything else related yeah. to the space. And, uh, and we did that, uh, uh, and we've owned it for, for, uh, for years now. And guess what? It's, it's working beautifully. So, so there's a simple way. You know, you own the industry. Yeah. A little bit of uh, – and because, because after these, big, these few big companies, you really don't get into producers. And so you're into the exploration world. And, uh, and and I don't know. It's just uh, yeah. it's tough to find the, the next one that's uh, that's safe and uh, with big upside. So well, as usual, and plus, once it gets more in the news, people gravitate. International investors gravitate to the the king, you know, the blue chipper, and that's uh, also there. Hey, look, this has just been fascinating, and I, I want to just repeat that, Paul. We really appreciate you coming out to the World Outlook Conference. I know a lot of people want to hear. Uh, I had a couple of relatives there last year and you were their favorite. And we had a lot of great speakers, you know, and thinkers about the markets. And I, I just think the kind of things you started out today about the monster changing environment, you know, uh, is something that we have to appreciate in terms of recession, end of rising interest rates, then anticipating when the fall comes. But at least the uncertainty there is starting to be removed. All of those things. So it's a great environment to hear what you guys think from BT Global. So. Uh, again, and by the way, Paul, you may not appreciate this. Tickets are finally available today, right after the show. People oh. can go and get tickets uh, to the World Outlook Conference. You know, the early bird specials are there. And so I really encourage people to do that because you'll get to hear people like Paul. And I look forward to having a chance just to chat with you, Paul. So thanks very much for this and look forward to seeing you. Thanks, Michael. Look forward to seeing you too. And, uh, I'll see you at the conference. Time now for the quote of the week. First, some background. Recently in the Bill Maher Show, in talking about the government response to COVID, NYU Stern School of Business professor Scott Galloway stated in quotes, 
I was on the board of my kid's school during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy. In retrospect, I was wrong. The damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk. But here's the bottom line. We were doing our best, end of quote. You know what? My immediate response was, actually, you weren't. Which brings me to my quote of the week by historian Muriel Blave, who responded to that claim that they were doing their best, stating in quotes, this is exactly why there never should have been any censorship in the first place, because the fact that they were wrong was predictable and predicted because there is nothing like pure science, because science is about debate and disagreement, not about imposing one's view and silencing critics. The people who realized authorities were wrong early on were never allowed to speak out and were vilified as anti-science, fringe scientists, or the ultimate insult, Trump supporters, end of quote. Well, of course, that's been a theme on Money Talks literally since the beginning of COVID. Going back to March 2020, it was obvious that no questions would be allowed. And again, I continue to say that is the most anti-science attitude that you could possibly have. Science is about debate and disagreement, as Muriel Blave points out. Man, have we ever failed on that score? And children and others are facing the consequences. Hey, by the way, I just want to remind you again that we do have the World Outlook Conference coming up. And of course, February 2nd and 3rd. But today is the day that you can kick off by getting your early bird ticket. And I encourage you to do so. But you'll hear so many good people. I'm looking forward again. I I looked at the track record the last several years and we can't do better. But even more important, I think we examine the framework for which we're living our financial lives. I mean, we gave a clear warning Back in February 2020 at the World Outlook Conference, your number one thing to do was to lock in your borrowing. Or if you wanted to borrow, lock it in for a long period of time uh, because that was where the risk was. And I remember getting a lot of blowback for my projections that way, saying it's going to move farther and faster than most people can imagine. I think that's just what's happened. Clearly, the government didn't imagine it. Bank of Canada didn't imagine it. And too many people. Uh, Canadians are. And now we're facing the consequences. Well, that's the environment we're in. That wasn't the whole story, but that is a hint as to what we're facing going forward. That's what we talk about at the World Outlook uh, Conference. And I look forward to seeing you there. So I'm just telling you, hey, go out and get the, go out and get your tickets right now. Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca. I want to bring Mike Levy in right now. Uh, Mike, Look, big news this week. We, of course, didn't raise interest rates. Everybody cares about that. We didn't raise them in the States also. But, you know, I thought the big story was why, and that is because the Canadian economy, and you're starting to get a lot of reports this way, is, you know, really sagging. It's not doing well. There's no growth involved here. Well, there isn't, Mike. And this raising of interest rates to this point is going to continue to negatively affect growth. It's just shown by the numbers that we're looking at. And that's what the Bank of Canada needs to quell inflation is for growth to stop and actually negative, a a negative scenario instead of growth. And I think it's interesting to hear what Paul Beattie was saying about that, that he thinks it's over, ladies and gentlemen, like those numbers are so bad looking forward. That's it. We've had the end of the rate rises, although he's not prepared to say when he thinks any drop will come. But that seems to be a building consensus. I've heard that in the States after they made their announcement not to shift. And no wonder, though, the States has got a stronger economy than Canada, for sure. Their consumer is still in the ballgame. Ours isn't. I mean, we're looking at a consumer-led recession here. So. Uh, 
Yeah, the, the, the U.S. is more than in the ball game. They're the home team and they're making the ball game. Yeah. But, you know, Mike, despite the population growth, which should push Canada's GDP yeah. higher, and we're raising our population just immigration-wise by half a million a year for three years, and, and uh, but per capita GDP, as you just said, continues to drop. It dropped 2.4% in the third quarter GDP per capita compared to last year. No growth in July and August. Expected no growth in September. And the growth is much lower than what the Bank of Canada was forecasting. Yeah, that's what's so interesting, too. I mean, I think in July we talked about that, that the Bank of Canada said we're going to get 1.7% growth in the third quarter. Well, as you just said, we're going to flatline in the third quarter, whether it's down a bit, up a bit, that kind of thing. But we flatlined in the second quarter, 0% growth overall in the second quarter. So, I mean, things are not rosy in that regard. And I think that should be a major concern because the other thing, Mike, now, you mentioned this a few, maybe six weeks ago, but I remember you talking about our interest costs. So we got to freeze the deficit spending because the interest cost keeps going up. Well, I don't like that formula. Rising interest payments that don't go down, you know, against a backdrop where government revenues are falling because the economy's flatlining. Well, absolutely. Zero growth uh, cuts government tax revenues. There's just no way around that in the face of rising or what we've got now are higher interest rates and the debt charges for our Canadian debt released this week by Public Accounts Canada. I, it is just what? We've yeah. got federal debt at $1.2 trillion, interest costs and government debt up 43% from 2022 from 2021. In 2021, I know it's going to be some numbers here. Interest costs were 24 and a half billion. That was up to 34.9 billion in 2022. And it's going to be an excess of 10 billion or an extra 10 and a half billion in interest costs. Where's that money going to come from? Yeah, no, I saw that your public account said that. It's like, wow, a 42% increase, 222 versus 221, and then another 26% increase. And and you're right. I mean, that money's going to be borrowed. That's one of my worries about the scenario. But at the very least, we should be talking about it, not just you and I, two weird old guys talking about interest payments. You know, the, the public should be aware of this. That's money that doesn't go, you know, elsewhere. Because it's going to be borrowed, it's going to be compounding out for a thousand years. Yeah, I, I think those are really important notes. So as I said, don't like the formula. Weakening economy, interest, interest payments going up? No. And Mike, I guess I should just throw in, since we're on this scenario where we're depressing people, in 2023, the interest charges are going to be about $44 billion. Yeah. That's another 26%. And I'm going to do a whereas now. You've talked about yeah. it just for a moment. U.S. Fed is struggling with strong growth. Now, they didn't raise their interest rates, but growth in the United States is expected to accelerate. Their economy is much better than ours. And as I was just talking, go personal for one sec, Rita, my wife and I were just talking, what's going on here? Canada is not inviting to businesses who want to come and do business in our jurisdiction. Taxation is way, way out of control. They're going elsewhere. And that's another hurt. 
Yeah, as it reflects in a 72 cent dollar, which you know means everything we buy that's imported or traveled from, into the U.S. you know is more expensive. But it is interesting. The U.S. economy it's again very complicated. So we have you know like we've had a real decline in the housing market. We see other numbers. So, but they're in a, a much more slower path to a slowdown, if that isn't too lack of elegance in saying that. But they're much slower path. Their consumers still in there. So lots more to discuss on this. Absolutely, Mike. And I'm going to say the U.S. could be raising rates early next year. I don't think Canada will or can be able to do that regardless because we've got to get growth back on track. Yeah. And if I had to bet, I'd say we lower first if I had to you know, put the money on it. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Have a good weekend. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And I'm going to start with a question. And there's no correct answer. But I'm just wondering, how much would the federal government have to waste or siphon off in highly questionable dealings? Which, by the way, in case you missed it, taxpayers got another egregious example a couple of weeks ago when a report commissioned by the federal government revealed that Sustainable Development Technology Canada has been distributing tens of millions of dollars inappropriately. What's noteworthy is that SDTC board members and executives were actually incentivized with big bonus bonuses to erroneously distribute these taxpayer dollars with little oversight. I mean, come on, where have we heard that before? Oh yeah, in virtually every auditor general or parliamentary budget office report. But the question is, how many other examples of mismanagement or worse of our tax dollars do you need to hear before you say, that's enough, we need to change? How many more examples of money unaccounted for before your allegiance to the country and fellow taxpayers trumps your allegiance to a particular politician or political party? I thought I should ask because this week's shocking stat is yet another example of tax dollars lost and we got nothing in return. And no one in government is prepared to even give us the details, which is why the loss of $150 million was hidden in the 1,000-page, three-volume, 2022-23 public accounts. Otherwise, you wouldn't know about it. Making matters worse is that Canada Public Health Agency, well, they lost $150 million, but now they refuse to give any details, none at all. As the National Post reports, former Parliamentary Budget Officer Kevin Page states that refusal to provide any details, in quotes, is not normal. It is public money, and so you have to be accountable. Well, I think we all know no one is going to be held account. That's how the federal government operates the public sector. And the public sector unions wouldn't have it any other way. Meanwhile, this is what always kills me. I guess people like paying taxes or think they're not paying enough or something because it rarely seems to bother a, a large number of people uh, about this. Well, you know, massive waste, mismanagement of tax dollars. It never seems to be a big story in the broadcast media. So it's over to us, to taxpayers, to make it a story. But for that, we have to care, which brings me back to that original question, how many tax dollars before we do care? In this case, chalk up another $150 million blown. At what point do we say that's enough and demand accountability? I want to welcome Ozzy Jurek into the show. Ozzy, by the way, you can find him at jurek.com. I invite you to go and sign up at ozbuzz.ca. 
Ozbuzz. That's the most Zeds used in the country right now. He's leading the <laughs> Zed March on the internet, but Ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy Jerk joins me. Ozzy, I'm going to have to throw a lot of stuff at you today. I'm going to, you know, so you got to be ready. But let, let's start with this. We talked about the unused home tax, and the deadline was, you know, October 31st. And by the way, that certainly had my attention, had other people's attention. But lo and behold, as they previously did, they extended it. And I just want to make sure people know that. Yeah, and in fact, the October deadline was postponed from April 30th, 2023. So, yep. so this is the second postponement. And I tell you, they don't do that because they like us. They do that. They had such an outcry of people. What do I say? What is the form? What to do? Yeah. Who, who qualifies? It was such a zoo that they extended to April 30th. So if you're part of it, if you don't file until April 30th and pay your money that you owe, there's no fines, there's no penalty, and you're okay. But it would be for the year 2022 and 2023. And, and again, what was so different about this is if you didn't file, whether you were, had to, you know, had an issue or not, if you didn't file, there was a, a financial penalty. I mean, that's Huge. not like other things in that way. So that's why it caught, sort of caught more attention. But I just wanted people to know, you could re relax like I will till what, April 29th? I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> so the new, the new deadline. Okay. Uh, there's so many other things I want to get to today because we had also, Ozzy, what I think is sort of a hint of what may do come, that housing shortages become on the radar of politicians. You know, we had the big flip, not the flip-flop, but, you know, was like Prime Minister Trudeau says it's not really a federal responsibility. The outcry was huge and sort of reversed that, you know, very quickly. Uh, but we've seen it at the municipal level. Finally, people are recognizing, I hope they recognize these guys are the problem, but they certainly haven't been the solution. No question, they haven't been the solution. And by the way, further juiced uh, by immigration, by the, the huge population growth, student visas, work visas, we, we just know we have no chance of meeting that demand. So uh, just looking at that, so we saw a move, and I want to point this out to people uh, around the country. They had a move in British Columbia this past week that, hey, all jurisdictions are looking. You're maybe not in British Columbia, but they said, believe me, your provincial government is looking at this. So maybe quickly explain what they, they came up with. Well, the idea is that, uh, that, you know, you can on any pretty well, any lot, you can build up to four properties, even if it's zoned single family, you can do. And the key here is that the BC government says, I'm the boss. And so if you're a municipality over 5,000 people, you must obey. So that means that anybody can, your neighbor can put a four houses on their own lot and up to six houses if they're close to uh, public transit and so on. And there's a lot of rules with it, but it's it sort of hit all kinds of people um, with good and bad intention. The mayor of Victoria and Vancouver are for it. Of course, they already have that legislation. Uh, Kelowna also, but there's a lot of people that are in the, um, in the, in every neighborhood. I wonder whether they know and understand what that means. You have a nice, quiet Canadian neighborhood. All of a sudden, I got sprouting six plexes beside me. Well, as you as you know, it's about I can't remember. It's maybe a month ago when we've been talking, and I came on the next week and say I, about the population pressures on housing, and I said I forgot to mention this, and I said I thought when they did something like this, 
people would pay attention because you say Canada's got a, you know, it's sort of a single family neighborhood country. And when you start messing with that, and I, I mean, I wouldn't want to have, you know, look over uh, one morning and see the construction alone. I wouldn't like it's, it's loud. It's disturbing, let alone, oh, good. I'm going to have four extra neighbors and they're not talking about what they're doing to increase the infrastructure at this time. You know, yeah. how are they going to manage it? And I, I know there's going to be a lot coming through on that, but I'm just saying, I think this one will get people's attention. Well, and, and it should, you know, because it makes a difference. Now, look, it's not all bad because in there they have a legislation that would eliminate public hearings for site-by-site -site rezoning and spot rezoning. What that means is if the municipality has an official community plan in which, let's say, this particular property is, is approved for making high-rises, well, if you make such an approval, then in the future, you don't have to have another public hearing. That should take maybe six months to a year out of. So, so that's a positive. It's not all bad. But the thing is that, you know, the, the whole idea of overriding everybody, I found very interesting. I mean, it's like when you take a look when they brought in the, the short term rental legislation uh, two or three weeks ago, they also put in there that they ended 60 years of jurisprudence on the protection under legal non-conforming legislation. So in other words, the NDP says, we're stripping you of your property rights, even though it was approved and all done. And, and now they're attempting to force homeowners into second homes to either a narrow funnel to sell or leave empty, like paper speculation tax or long-term rent your property. Well, I was listening also, Ozzy, just to let people know, to the Liberal Immigration Minister, Mark Miller. He announced, I think it was yesterday, uh, well, I guess it must have been on Wednesday, uh, but he, he said Canada is going to accept 1,485,000 more yeah. newcomers by 2026. That's not including student visas, which has been a huge problem because they don't know how many are in here. And again, just pressure on housing. Uh, you know, we don't have the infrastructure. That should have been the lesson already. Clearly hasn't been. There's no accompanying plans. But 1,485,000 more newcomers by 2026, just from the immigration file alone, well, good luck with finding housing for them in an already strained housing market. I, I just thought, oh, I guess they're just telling us we're not getting to affordable housing in any way. Well, you know, of course, the government in BC has become like I'm the boss. It says it orders the city of Vancouver to add 29,000 homes over the next five years. It announces legislative housing supply targets actual targets that will set shortly for 10 cities. It has a list of 47 cities in BC that are target for the Housing Supply Act. And it has created a new digital building permitting tool. I haven't seen that yet. But it, it certainly has said, hey, we're the boss and you better listen. And the penalties on the, for instance, the short-term rental area are immense. And, you know, so now somebody that made an investment on the current prevailing rules all of a sudden, oh, you just spend a million to a thousand, put a million dollar mortgage on it, on the yeah. business proposition. You weren't a bad person. This is under rules. They're legislated. There's all sorts of websites now. If you go to Facebook, you can join landlord societies. But you created again a us and them to people that are not responsible for the housing crisis. Yeah, absolutely. They changed the rules. I made a, uh, a decision. The government walks in and changes the rules you know so now what i was basing my decision on is no longer in existence there's no allowance for that there's no grandfather act none of this kind of stuff and again i'll leave this for now but i'll just say ozzy you know again we should have a look at what private property rights are because you know when they talk about our real estate all of a sudden 
you know, no, you don't get to do with what you want. They're under the old rules. You know, the changes here and density in your neighborhood, all of that stuff. Uh, so I'll leave it for now, but we will talk more about that. But I want to finish this just one thing. I was just going to throw this out of left field at you. I was reading about this huge judgment in the States, and we should pay attention because it could have implications for Canada about commissions, uh, you know, judgment around commissions and uh, was it Zillow, Zillow, Remax, et cetera. I mean, the fines are out there are huge. That better explain better than I just did. Well, it's a federal jury in the United States that ruled uh, this week that the powerful National Association of Realtors, which is like Canadian Real Estate Association, and then Zillow, which, because Zillow stock, by the way, dropped 2% on the day when that judgment came out, Zillow and Remax, and so on. The idea is that they artificially inflate to pay real estate agents. And of course, that could radically alter the, the, the buying process because the damages have been assessed at $1.8 billion, and the verdict, the verdict allows the court to issue triple damages, which could be more than $5 billion. And you better better believe people in Canada are watching that one too. I mean, it's just uh, came out of the blue for me, anyways. I didn't realize that was an ongoing process, and and then they come out as you said. And I want to emphasize what you just said, Ozzy. It's a verdict. It's not a lawsuit anymore. I mean, we've got a judgment on that, so right, right. it's reality. Okay, Ozzy, I've been cheerful enough today. But look, I appreciate you taking the time. You're always well prepared. Express it beautifully. I can take a lesson every week from you. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And I would urge people to go ozbuzz.ca uh, on uh, YouTube. We have a video there that has uh, on short-term rentals that has really hit home. Now, yeah. uh, what has hit home also is the other day, uh, my wife and I have been together for a very, very long time. And, and I always, she let me be the head of the family, which I thought was nice. And I realized the other day, she is the neck, you know, I mean, <laughs> she is continuously putting me. So I have this for you. You know, one of our secrets is never go to bed mad, fight. <laughs> and I can hear people or see people nodding their heads as we speak. Ozzy, you go out and have a great week. Ozbuzz.ca. Talk to you shortly. Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Dare joins me now. Vic, uh, you may have caught Paul Beatty talking about sort of the change in the interest rate environment that he says. I chatted with Michael Levy, uh, more emphasizing the weak economic numbers coming out of Canada, which again would allow the Bank of Canada to sit in the sidelines at the very least. And I wanted to start with your take, because last week you were talking with Kevin Muir, macro tourist, great interview. But Kevin was sort of sharing that same view with you, saying, you know, all of a sudden, he didn't like the bond market, but right now he does. At least on the shorter term, all of a sudden, he thinks bonds are more attractive because rates have stopped going up. So I don't want to go any further without getting your take on this. Yeah, it was, it was just such a pleasure to have Kevin on with me, first of all, on the show last week. And I really like Kevin. I've read a lot of his reports over the last several years. But he's been a big bear on the bond market. And to keep it really simple, it's just like me. I look ahead and I think that the governments of the world have discovered that their voters like it when they spend money, whether they get yep. a, enough tax revenue in or not. So we are going to have continuing deficits. And that means we're going to have a continuing flood of supply of government paper, whether it's bills, bonds, or notes. And, you know, so that's kind of been the reason to be fundamentally bearish on bonds. However, We've got to a spot here where I think the bond market just got extremely 
oversold. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm playing a bounce in the bond market, and I think Kevin is as well. Longer term, <laughs> I don't think it's where you, you know, you really want to be and just grit your teeth while the market goes against you. And again, just to add to that is that when you say the bond market's going to go up, you're saying that long-term bond yields will go down. You know, so if you're a borrower, you're looking for a mortgage, you might get a little bit of a window of opportunity over the next few months, you know, but that doesn't guarantee, it's not a straight line, doesn't guarantee that that won't be our future. And I'm with you on that. I still think government finances are a huge problem. You know, we could go to Japan right now. I mean, I try and keep my eye on that because they are in real trouble in Japan, third world, world's third largest economy. And it all starts with interest rates and their currency, all the stuff you look at every day. But yeah, so I, I just want to make sure the message is clear that you may, if you're a borrower, you might get a little window coming up here as the economy weakens, as you know, rates adjust to that. But that is no guarantee that rates are going down for some sort of long-term period. Uh, we got many quality people saying, no, they th- in fact think they'll eventually go higher than this. Well, speaking of that, I mean, we had the stock market here uh, have a bounce this week. We're up about 5% across the board, yeah. whether it's Toronto, the S&P, the, the Dow. Uh, the, but the thing is, the market had been going down since July. I think we had some pretty sizable short positions built in the stock market and in the bond market. So this is a bit of a positioning bounce. We've had some data this week that showed a softening economy, the possibility of a recession coming. You know, the Treasury's eased back on the amount of paper they're going to put out there. The Fed certainly sounded dovish. So there was we, we, the the call it the kindling was laid and we had a spark and we've had a strong rally in stocks and bonds this week. But your point is well taken. You had a whole bunch of people playing the market to go down. In order to realize those profits, they have to go in and buy and close out the position. That helps put some fuel into that upward move. Uh, I want to talk also, though, uh, two two other areas. One, Canadian dollar at 72 cents or, you know, and change, obviously, that way. Wow. Uh, And again, you can expect bounce backs on that. But, you know, that to me is not a positive for any Canadian consumer. There's been a question in the credit markets here for the last call it a year or so when people were seeing the sharp rise in interest rates after a decade and a half of virtually zero rates. So during that period of time of zero rates, there was probably a lot of money that got invested poorly. And now that rates have gone up and let's say people have to roll over their debt at a much higher level, the question has been, what is going to break because of this sharp sea change in interest rates where we've gone so much higher in such a short period of time? And in my trading desk notes the past couple of weeks, I've just proposed that possibly it's the Canadian dollar that breaks. You know, the country, we have a much shorter cycle on mortgages than you do in the States. The yes. typical cycle there is 30 years. Here it's much shorter. So a lot of people are going to come up to having to refinance their mortgages at a much higher rate. And real estate is a much bigger part of our economy or our wealth, let's call it yes. that, than it is in the United States. So Canada may be has been trading. I think we hit a, a one-year low this week. And I think there may be people out there that just see Canada may struggle relative to the United States as a result of this sharply higher interest rate environment. 
Well, I think your point about the U.S. You know, prefers a 30-year mortgage and we have a five-year mortgage. So they're not really experiencing the impact on other consumer spending of the rise in, uh, I'm not saying people aren't getting impacted if they have bad luck, but the vast percentage of Americans aren't getting hit by the high mortgage rates, you know, if they're already in an existing one. But as you say, ours are maturing. We've got more than half of our mortgages coming due over the next uh, couple of years that's when, again, you'll see that impact, of course, on uh, consumer spending because you'll pay more for your mortgage. Well, that money isn't going elsewhere on that. So I, th- I think your point's very well taken and one to keep a- an eye on. But the other one I wanted to get to uh, because you know, it's, it's a big interest in a world where governments are producing a lot of money um, about gold because it, it's had a pretty nice rally. Yeah, the gold is up about $200 off the lows that we made the the week before the uh, horrible events happen in, in Israel. And we've had that rally. I think it's been very much a geopolitical spike rally in gold. Uh, one of the things that, that is uh, important to gold is the U.S. dollar. Now, the U.S. dollar had a down week this, this week as yeah. stocks and bonds went up. Uh, and interest rates have been going higher. That's been a drag on gold. So, yeah, interest rates turning a bit lower. That's got to be good news for gold. So it's been kind of an ideal environment, let's say, the last three, four weeks for gold to rally, and we're up $200. Hey, let me let me finish with this. Uh, and I don't want any recommendations. I mean, we don't know everybody's circumstances, et cetera. But are you watching, are a couple of markets just grabbing your attention more than others? Or uh, again, I, I know you have to look internationally, look across the board, but there's a couple of things that all of a sudden jump up. Oh, I, I'm really focusing on that. Not saying, as I say, no recommendation, just what markets are really kind of grabbing your attention? Well, I'm always paying attention to whatever's going on in the credit markets and the currency markets and the equity markets. So if there's nothing going on in any of those markets, then I can just go play golf. <laughs> okay, well, good luck with that at this time of year. Or are you rubbing it in that you're on Vancouver Island and you can still play golf? Absolutely. Many people, friends of mine in Calgary are not saying the same thing. So right. there you go. Vic, go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Good talking with you. And I'll remind people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, and check out the latest charts, everything he's got going that way. He does cover all the markets because it is international. Things that happen in one country impact us here. That's one of the things I think we're getting more sophisticated on, but Victor's been doing that for a 40-year career. So victoradare.ca, and stay with us. I got a goofy award for you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. This is a case, by the way, where I use the word goofy. It's, it's way too light. The connotation isn't serious enough because everything surrounding the sneak attack by Hamas and now the ongoing war couldn't be more serious. But, you know, there's one aspect that continues to have me shaking my head in disbelief, and that is the support at what are called pro-Hamas Palestine rallies by LBTGQ groups marching in what's called solidarity. Come on, you may have seen the combined pride pro-Hamas flags in New York City or London with LBTQ protesters declaring it's, in quotes, to show the solidarity between the queer community and Palestine, end quote. Well, that refrain has been prominent in protests throughout Canada, too, and other Western countries. As with many other aspects of this war, my first reaction was utter shock. I mean, what the hell are they thinking? Is this because they're so misinformed? Are they got a death wish? Are they delusional? Because the reality is clearly expressed by a Palestinian 
scholar from Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, who stated in quotes, the people of Palestine will not allow a single homosexual in our land. Such perversion brings the wrath of Allah. Well, I'm not so sure what part of that's difficult to understand. I mean, same-sex relationships in Gaza are illegal, punishable by 10-year jail sentence. You look, on the other hand, I mean, Israel is the only country in the region that recognizes same-sex marriages that are performed abroad. It's the only country in the region that allows same-sex couples to adopt children, protects LBGTQ people from discrimination and violence, and allows gay people to serve openly in the military. And yet members of the LBGTQ community support Hamas in Palestine? Despite the warnings, in a 2022 Amnesty International report, Palestinian authorities failed to prevent and investigate homophobic and transphobic threats and attacks. Because just in July, security forces stood by and watched as a mob beat uh, youth and children because they participated in a parade that had included rainbow flags. As Amnesty put it, in quotes, the attack came amid a wave of incitement to violence and hate speech against LGBTQ people and feminists, which the authorities failed to investigate. I mean, as the BBC reports, hundreds of Palestinians who identify as LGBTQ currently live as asylum seekers in Israel. I mean, no wonder. I mean, Hamas is an organization that denies LGBTQ people any rights, representation, or recognition. I mean, Hamas has imposed a strict, intolerant vision of Islamic law on Gaza, where homosexuality is illegal. Hamas is an organization that persecutes, tortures, and kills LGBTQ people and forces them to flee for their lives. And yet, we've got Western LGBTQ groups in the support for Palestine and uh, Hamas rallies. As I said, this is far more serious than the word goofy applies. Hey, just a reminder again as I finish off, I'm already excited about this. You look forward to it. I look forward to the Outlook Conference every year. Look forward to seeing the analysts, hearing from the analysts. But I look forward to meeting all the people who listen to Money Talks and have enjoyed and attended the conference. I mean, it's been a great success, and I do appreciate that public support, your support. But I want to encourage you, now's the time. You can finally get your ticket. Don't wait for it. You know me. I'm going to be, I'm going to be like the old K-Tail salesman on this one, you know, and for a limited time only. No, but check it out. Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca. Click on events. And in the meantime, I hope you do join us. On, on Twitter for uh, Money Talks tweets, on Facebook for Michael Campbell's Money Talks, and of course, join us at mikesmoneytalks.ca. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week.